Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 44 is where we're going to be beginning. Once again, we are in this series, How to Read the Bible, Navigating the Library of Scripture. And we're spending the fall on this series because though most of us that would be gathering for a church service on a Sunday morning would agree that the Bible is in some way important, very few of us have ever actually learned how to read it. Uh, Many of us have spent our whole lives in the church and we feel terrified to open up this thing because, you know, it's like reading a a car manual for some, you know, something we've never driven before. And even more than that, as we've been looking at in our book club, how not to read the Bible, not only have many of us never learned how to read it, many of us have been given paradigms for reading the scriptures that are just not faithful to the way the Bible itself invites us to read it. And so we've been trying to put together a, a paradigm for reading from the scriptures. And so uh, here we are in our third week. Uh, our first week, we first looked at the Bible as both a human and divine word. That is both the writings of humanity and yet a belief that the Holy Spirit inspired. God himself breathed out this book. Last week, we looked at the unifying plot and theme of the Bible. We, you know, we went through the whole Bible in a couple of minutes. Today, we're going to be looking at the question, Who is the main character of the story? Who is the Bible about? And who is that main character? And how is it about them? So with that being said, if you're at Luke chapter 24, verse 44, would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures? Where today we find an answer to our question from Jesus. Now, we're going to be jumping right into the middle of the chapter. And so, man, We could just read the whole, all of the back half of Luke chapter 24. It's one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, the Emmaus story on the road. But anyway, Jesus, this is right after he is resurrected from the dead. And now he's been on a long walk with a couple of disciples explaining to them the scriptures. And now he shows up to his disciples. And my favorite thing is he shows up. They they freak out because they think it's a ghost. So he's like, no, touch me, not a ghost. And they're like, okay, well, that's really him. And then I love Jesus goes, do you guys have anything to eat? Like, Jesus, just so good. Like, they give him a fish sandwich. Like, it's like the, it's just the, like, normal ordinariness of the story is so fantastic. So Jesus sits down. I like to imagine him, you know, talking while he's eating um, as, as we read these next words with, you know, the fish sandwich in his hand. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Let's pray. And so Father, our ask today is that Uh, like Jesus did with the disciples over this uh, dinner of fish, that uh, in this moment that you would open our minds to the scriptures as well. God, that as we investigate what Jesus means, what he's saying here, that it would unlock something within us about a new way of reading the scriptures that makes sense within the way that Jesus reads it. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to see the scriptures, help us to read the Bible like Jesus would have us, like you would have us, Father. Holy Spirit, speak. Would you minister? Would you help us set aside distractions, everything coming out of the past week or what we might be going into and just be present in this moment with you through your word. In your name we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat, y'all. One of the strange things 
awesome things, but strange all the same things about being a pastor is one of the roles that I have in my job is the gift of getting to officiate weddings. And this brings about a strange side effect because I often find myself in pictures with me in them on people's, in people's homes that I've never been in before. <laughs> Like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, come over to dinner, you know, for some, whatever reason, you know, I'm married. And then I'm there, you know, you walk in and they're in the living room, there's a picture of Ryan there. Like, oh, that's kind of weird. Or just on social media. Like, I'll just, you know, be scrolling through and then there's, there's me. Oh, here I am. I had no idea that I was going to be posted about today, but here I am because I, you know, officiated this wedding. Here I am. So this was from last year. Um, Josue and Rachel, such an awesome wedding. Mariachi band that came out halfway through. It was, oh, it was so good, the food. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, here I am marrying them, but here's, here's the reality. Um, this picture has me in it, but it's not about Ryan, is it? No, that would be very weird for me to think that this was a picture about Ryan. And so that's why after pronouncing them husband and wife, my job is regularly to get out of the way, normally with varying degrees <laughs> of effectiveness. Um, it's just, when you zoom in, it gets even creepier, just like... <laughs> So my job is to get out of the way. How well I do that is um, varying degrees of effectiveness. So here's the point. Though I'm in the picture, the picture is not about me, yes? It would be the height of either ignorance or arrogance for me to, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and to like, you know, get like a glamour shot ready, right? Like, oh, I'll get a new profile picture out of this. Like that would be the height of me not understanding what the picture that's being taken is about. Now, I bring this up to say, as we consider how we read the Bible, I'm very worried that many of us have been trained to read the Bible like a wedding officiant using the wedding as a chance to update their headshots. Where we have something that, though, yes, we are a part of it, we have a shift and we begin that because I'm a part of this picture or this story, it means that I am the center point of it. How this works out is we read the Bible like me-centered literature. That is, we open the Bible and we start looking for me in it. All of those broken paradigms for our first week all revolve around a me-centered way of reading Scripture. So you remember the, um, the moral handbook. I open the Bible, pure, the main thing is going, what should I do? What is the morals that I need to take on? Or as a theological dictionary, what are the things that I need to believe? Or as a devotional grab bag, what are the promises that I must rest in? It is a me-centered way of doing this. And so some of you maybe to hear, you know, one example of this that some of you might have grown up with is, you know, we read the story of like David and Goliath, Right? And then we hear, okay, so what is the story about David and Goliath is about? Well, you are David. And so the question is, what's your giant, right? And so then what are your five smooth stones that you're going to go out trusting the Lord to take down the giant? And for some reason, every single time they go through the five, one of the five stones is tithing. Like, you're, like that's always, it's like tithing. It's like the sword of this, you know, Bible. And you put this one in, it's like, you know, be honesty or whatever. And then it's like tithing. And you're like, wow, what does that have to do with? And it's always snuck in there. What ends up happening is we read David and Goliath or the story of Job or Esther or Daniel or any of them more or less like Aesop's fables. And the question is, what is the little moral that I'm looking for in the narrative? Or what is the theological thing that I need to believe in order to hold this thing as it's meant to be? But as me-centered literature, it just it works until it doesn't, I think is what we've been keep saying about some of these paradigms, is they work until they don't. 
And so whatever we read in this paradigm, it's always our first question is, how is this about me? How is this for me? Now, is there a good intuition that if this is God speaking, a human and divine word, that it should have some implications on me and my life? That's a great intuition we're going to return to. But first, let's begin with how Jesus understands the Bible. Back in Luke 24, what we just read a moment ago, and what we read here being just one example of a continual theme in Jesus' teachings, Jesus says the Bible, the main character, who this book is about is himself. You know, the Sunday school answer here, you're not going to be in trouble. Who is the Bible about? It's about Jesus. Or within our definition of the Bible that we keep returning to, examining different pieces of this each week, what we're setting out in this series to see is the Bible is a library of ancient writings, both divine and human, so two weeks ago, that tell a unified story last week, leading us to Jesus. Here we are this week, leading us to Jesus. The Bible, this human and divine word, this story that is unified is given to lead us to Jesus. The fancy big word is that the Bible is a Christocentric story, a Christ-centered story. Christ not being Jesus' last name, but a title that we're going to look at a little bit more in a moment right here, but it's this Hebrew word, Messiah. Christ is Messiah, and it is a title. And so when we say this, the Bible is messianic literature. It is Christocentric literature. It is a story that leads to, is about Jesus. That is what we're saying today. Which, which really does get at the heart of not just how should we read this thing, but why should we be reading the Bible in the first place? You see, why would I open up any other library of ancient, do- just think about this for a moment. Take away the like divine word, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And just think about that here you have a book that is a co- like a compilation of thousands of year old literature. Why would I sit down and read this in some cases every single day other than I am a Christian? I'm a Messiah person. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and this library tells me about him and who he is and if I want to know him more, follow him more closely, understand his work for me and to me and in me, then this is the place for me to do that. Or even for those of you that maybe aren't a follower of Jesus, you know, Messiah person, a Christian, if you want to investigate Jesus, if you're skeptical but wanting to investigate, you're trying to you know, take apart Jesus and what it means to follow him from the American church industrial complex, the Bible is the place and the way to do that, to see him more fully, to know him more truly. And so we read the Bible not because it's about us, but because it's about Jesus. And if we want to know him better and understand him more faithfully, what he's done, what it means to trust and follow him, Jesus is the main character. And this library is how he goes about instructing us and shaping us and introducing himself to us. So the question is, how is Jesus the main character of the Bible? He doesn't show up until a lot of the way through it. I was trying, I was like racking my brain trying to think of some other example of a story where some character doesn't show up until the very end. And, you know, if all the posters had that character on the, you know, I'm trying to think of, I could not think of a good example of that. Maybe like, Oh, come on, Ryan. I don't know. It is, what? Ooh, yeah, like the alien at the end. Doesn't show up at the end, but he's all around there. But see, you're getting, to, you're getting that's, that's actually a really good example. I'm looking for a bad, here, here's a great example. That's a, Star Wars. It's always Star Wars with me. There's this really crazy thing. Boba Fett in the original Star Wars stories has like two lines 
and he dies in kind of a really dumb way. Like he just like goes into the Sarlacc pit with like, you know, a, a, literally a, a technical malfunction of his jetpack. He's not that cool, but he's awesome. He has no lines and, and he became like, you know, I've got pins, I've got friends that got tattoos. Like Boba Fett is our favorite, watch, because he's like cool. He's not in the movie that much, but everybody gets so excited about Boba Fett. And I think in the same way, you kind of have to come to this and go, Jesus is here for a very little amount of time within the actual story that's going on here, what makes us think that he is the main character? And so the key word to look at here is verse 44 in what we just read. Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, notice going back to last week, the three-part structure, the Tanakh that Jesus notices here, the law, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is the first book of the writings, the Ketuvim. So we talked about this last week. For those of you who are like, I don't know what he's saying. It's okay. That's a, that a spoiler for, or a hint back to last week. But then notice what he says. So all, everything written about me in the Old Testament is what he's saying here, must be, and what's the word? Fulfilled. Filled to the full. Everything written about me, he likens to, this word shows up throughout the New Testament like a net that has gone into the water and now has been brought up and it's teeming with fish. It's a net that's been filled full. It's a container that now is filled up with everything that it was made for. It's also used to talk about the sail of a boat that it's fulfilled with wind, right? And now it's moving itself forward. You might say that if you have a full day, what happened? Every hour of the day had something going on. It was a fulfilled day or you had a full night's sleep. All of the young parents in here were like, no, I did not. But a fulfilled, we know about that. Or um, a dumpling with soup, it's fulfilled. Yes, full, filled to the full, right? Until you pick it up and then it just empties out everywhere. It's though Jesus sees the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as this, you'll see behind me, beautifully shaped yet empty chalice. A container that is beautiful. It's not, it's not garbage. It's not trash that I've got to come and deal with. It's this incredible story, this beautifully ornate object, and yet it, it's empty. It hasn't been filled up. Or as another example, sorry for another Star Wars reference, a death, my Death Star silicon ice cube molds. I got this at a white elephant party. And so you close it, you fill it up with water, and then it freezes overnight. And then for... Um, um, Kool-Aid, you uh, use it, <laughs> you put it in there and it's a little Death Star. But notice the way that it works is it's an inverse, uh, really defined like picture that the water then freezes up into, right? It, it's fulfilled with the water that then makes the shape. Some of you guys are totally tracking with me. Some of you guys think I'm ridiculous, but now you're gonna think about this every time you open the Bible. You're welcome. So Jesus sees the scriptures as this beautifully shaped but empty chalice or ice cream or ice cube mold. And so what Jesus says within this fulfilled understanding is the Bible works less like a bunch of predictive verses and more that each book, each character, each theme, each story, each psalm, every law together make up this pattern, these types that are awaiting their fulfillment. As uh, Pastor Tim Keller from New York says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. There's the Aesop's fable stuff. It is not. 
Rather, it comprises one single story, the unified story from last week, telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. So less it will happen this way and more of this shaping story that's awaiting its fulfillment. So the question then is, what is the chalice? What's the mold that makes the shape of Messiah? As Jesus says in verse 46, this is what is written. And then he doesn't, he doesn't quote a Bible verse right there in verse 46. When he says, the Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning, He's not quoting a Bible verse. That's Jesus' shorthand for all of the Bible. So Jesus, what's the Bible about? Oh, let me tell you. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus says the whole Bible is about. So if I don't have a framework for that, then it's worth looking into. Now, I want to point out really quickly this three-part V-shaped form of what Jesus has just said, that once you get this image in your head, um, it's going to carry you through not just the rest of this teaching, but all of the Bible. For Jesus, the gospel is a V-shaped story, okay? That begins with the Messiah, which again is a title. It's, it's from Hebrew, it means anointed one. And so it's the person, it's this one individual who is God's anointed, chosen, favored representative, set apart from everyone else to serve as a representative to God for the people, but then to serve as a representative for God back to the people. So you think of a king, you think of a priest, you've got these all together. They have this special relationship with God favored by him. And so this is last week. Remember the Bible's three-part promise for God saying, I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell with them. Another way to say that is Messiah. The person whose God is the creator God, who is their person or people, who dwells and walks with their God. This is the anointed Messiah person. And Jesus says the story of the Bible is that that individual would enter into suffering and die. On the other side of Luke's gospel, we know he's talking about unjustly suffering violence, being scorned by others, being naked and ashamed as he is crucified outside of the city on a mountaintop. But what happens is the story doesn't, though it goes down, it doesn't end there, but there is a rising from the dead where the Messiah who went into suffering now comes up to bring uh, intercession for his people, blessing and forgiveness and good news to the nations. Do you see the, the story of the gospels right there of what Jesus has come to do? Now, this is great for reading the gospels, but here's the problem that I've had for years. I read Jesus's words and I go, <clears throat> what Bible are you reading, Jesus? This doesn't, Leviticus is about the Messiah will enter into Esther, the story of Samson, Noah and the ark, Jeremiah, all of these stories are telling this story. So amid our confusion, what I've found as most helpful is if I'm going to be a Messiah person, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, then it means that no matter how hard this may be at first, this needs to become the operating assumption of what the Bible is doing. Jesus goes, hey, this is it. And I go, I don't see it. Jesus goes, look harder, look closer. And what I found is after years of wrestling with this, it has been thrilling to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt and to begin to start looking back into the stories and the laws and the Psalms of the Old Testament and finding that Jesus is actually onto something. He's not crazy. And so for the next few minutes, what I wanna do is I'm gonna follow Jesus's assumption to help us take some of our first steps in reading the Bible as messianic literature by last week returning back to page one of the Bible. You'll see behind me a, uh, something that immediately looks a little bit 
similar, but let's just walk through this. In the beginning, God creates everything and everything is a good creation. And right in the middle of it, he places these two little creatures called humanity, which he tasks as being the image of God, his representatives out into the rest of creation, bringing God's blessing and order and life out into the world. Do you get the Messiah connections there? Representative and image of God? Okay, we see that. And then what ends up happening though is a serpent comes who leads them astray by distrusting God and what it leads to is folly and sin, which then leads to nakedness, lock that away as a key theme, which then leads to Cain and Abel, violence, which then continues to lead into pride, which then leads to an outcry of those of violence and lament and pain all happening within the world that leads to the flood story, which is nothing less than a decreation God who brought order in life out of the waters, separating and making land. He goes, okay, you don't want me anymore, humanity. I'll step away. And that's where the flood comes. And yet before this all happens, God finds a righteous one, Noah, one of the few people in the Bible that's called righteous and blameless. And he comes with him and goes, okay, you're going to be my righteous representative and intercessor who through this ark, I'm gonna lead you guys out from decreation into a renewed creation. And through Noah, blessing and life comes out for all the world. It's, a, it's almost like a restart on this mountain place. So do you guys see Adam to Noah, first couple chapters of the Bible, first nine. Do you guys see the connection here? Like if you read just that, you go, oh, I see what Jesus is getting at. At least hopefully. Now, here's the thing. There's nine chapters down, uh, 1,180 to go. So <laughs> buckle up. No, because here's what's, here's what's fantastic. The first nine chapters, what we just looked at, is the melody that then gets developed throughout the rest of the Bible. As a great example of this, I was so thankful. One of my professors, Tim Mackey, likened it to John Coltrane's Blue Train out of the Blue Note Jazz era. And so um, go listen to it this week. There's an 11-minute song. Is the first track called Blue Train. And how many of you guys are, are tracking? With, do you guys know Blue Train off the top of your head? Anybody? Okay, some of you guys. So you know the first 30 seconds is... Um, and I'm going to keep going. So it's 30 seconds of that, right? And then the song is 11 minutes. And it's the jazz as they take that initial little thing and they start doing different instruments or different tempo or different beat or they inverse it or they, they, they play around with that 30, or opening 30 seconds for 11 minutes. The Bible is like that. That in this, these first nine chapters from Adam and Eve down to Noah, you have these little key moments in the stories that every other story then is picking up and riffing on and playing with and inverting and twisting and moving around. That, that, that's the whole Bible. It works like jazz. The Bible also works like Star Wars. <laughs> There's this great little line when, when George Lucas is working on the prequels where he says um, that Star Wars is, you see the echo of where all of this is going to go. It's like poetry. They rhyme is what he says. And so um, here's some great examples of, look, I just, the top one was one of my favorites right here. Luke seeing Obi-Wan killed by Darth Vader is the, the, enact, like the, the camera shot and everything mirrors Obi-Wan seeing his master Qui-Gon being cut down by Sith Lord. It's the, like, it's like the same story. Um, we're not gonna talk about the sequels that much. I'm st I still have a hard relationship with them. Um, but, I, but you can see like what they're getting at here. You got Han Solo, you know, with the, he shrugs and Ben does the same thing. Um, we're not going to talk about Evil Ray, but I, this one's one of my favorites. I'm sorry, you guys, it's going to be okay. Give me two minutes to geek out about this. Um, this is the, um, if you guys saw the second season of Mandalorian, 
Luke coming to save Mandalorian is a reverse of his dad, Anakin, like storming through the temple and like killing. It's so good. This is how Lord of the Rings works. This is how every epic story works. This is also how I looked into this week, Jurassic Park works. Um, Jurassic Park does the same thing in their sequels that they've been developing, right? So the whole point is as you're reading it, you're going, I've seen this story before. But then when things get subverted, it's that much more surprising because different things have been setting you up. This is how the Hebrew Bible works. It is that, that, that little V-shaped story that every story plays around with and twists and moves around with. If Jurassic Park and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and jazz is too nerdy for you, this is also how Arrested Development works. <laughs> Dr. Roberto de la Naval, he is a professor at theology at Notre Dame, has an incredible article called How Arrested Development Taught Me to Read the Scriptures. And what he notes is in the show Arrested Development, the way that they do jokes is not through traditional sitcom one scenario that gets ended within an episode, but little jokes that lay up and become bigger jokes as you go. One of my favorite is Buster Bluth getting his arm bit off by a Lucille, which is a play on words from his mom's name, Lucille. And so all throughout the story, it's building up to like before he ever faces the seal, He's got his awards from army and one of them is like a, a seal. He's got a hand chair that got taken away. And so he says, I never thought I'd miss a hand so much. Like little things that, that when you get to it, you're like, oh my gosh. And so there's a website called recurringdevelopments.com where you can go to and find, you can click on a recurring joke and it'll show you every episode that it shows up in. Or you can click on an episode and it will show you all of the recurring jokes that set up because there's wordplay, there's repeated jokes. This is how the Hebrew Bible works. And I'm not kidding. Those first nine chapters set up a melody that every single story that picks up then is riffing on. And then as those stories build up, each one is then riffing on not just that first story, but all these other riffings and pulling from stories. I could geek out on one that I figured out this week, but I'm gonna save it. Um, and so here's the thing. When Jesus is reading the Hebrew scriptures, when he's reading the Old Testament, when he sees this, messy, he sees this messianic melody that's being repeated and riffed and inverted, there's all these moving pieces. What Jesus is saying over his fish sandwich is I am the crescendo of that messianic melody that's been playing. I am the fulfillment of the song that's been awaiting its final crescendo. And so here, just to really quickly tease this out, because some of you think maybe I'm kidding. Let's go from Adam then after the flood. So God, so just, you know, imagine the one we looked at a moment ago being over here on the left, is then it comes up to Noah now, who Noah intercedes, he brings breathing, blessing and life and recreation. But what happens? Noah, just like Adam and Eve, gets into trouble with fruit. But this time it's not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's wine, right? And what does that end up learning him to be? Drunken and being naked and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve. Do you see? You're like, oh yeah. And then that leads to sexual abuse. It leads to violence. And now it leads to the city of Babel being built, Babylon becoming this um, catchphrase for when humans get to the bottom of this level, they become an empire, a city built against God. And so Babylon becomes this archetype for that. And so they build up Babylon. God decreates it. It's like a little mini flood just in Babylon, but it's the tower that falls and the people that are flooded out over the world. And then what happens is in the midst of that scattering, God calls out one new righteous intercessor by the name of Abram. Follow me and are into the debt. Like, and, and you know, I'm gonna bless, there's gonna be blessing and new creation in life through the family. Like, and you just keep going. And then you go into, uh, keep going, Genesis 12 through 22, the life of Abraham. 
Abraham becomes the one who intercedes. As soon as he gets to the promised land, he builds an altar and prays to God and blessing in life is promised to him, this nation of a family. And what ends up happening though, as soon as things get good, the Noah story set us up now, we're like, it's gonna go really, really badly. And what ends up happening is they distrust the promise of God. And so now in this story, well, there's two different ones where it's, play, it's riffing on the story. In the first one, Abraham is now likened to being the deceitful serpent who uses his wife saying that she's actually his sister, and it's a really weird story, gives to Pharaoh, and now Pharaoh is like Adam and Eve being deceived and giving a thing that leads to curse that spreads out through the the story. And the next one, distrusting the promise that they're gonna have a family because they're elderly, and they're like, we can't have babies anymore. Sarah becomes like the serpent because she calls for Adam to listen to her voice, and she doesn't offer tree from the knowledge of good and evil. She offers her servant, Hagar, which then is sexually abused into the ends of pregnancy, right? And, then we, and so we end up down here, a curse and plague that goes out throughout the... You see that we're just repeating the same story, but then what ends up happening, that God's commitment to Abraham and, the, and Sarah and Hagar in particular is a beautiful story. In the midst of all of this, God then brings out recreation and blessing through Isaac being this intercessor substitute figure, and then blessing in life comes, and then you just follow Isaac's story and it does it again. This is every single story in your Bible, is this crescendo being built up? You can look through the story of Joseph, the beloved son who is stripped of glory by his brothers, left for dead, sold as a slave, but because he's faithful to God, he rises up as a royal mediator to bless the nations in the midst of a famine and forgive his brothers. You can go through the Exodus story. You can go through Zipporah and the weird story about the bridegroom of blood. You can look through the Israelites going in through death, through the Red Sea, out into new life. When Israel worships the golden calf, God's like, I'm gonna bring death. Moses intercedes for them on the high place saying, don't kill them, kill me. And God seeing Moses' posture forgives them and commits himself to Israel even further. It's, every, it's the righteous intercessor who goes up. It's every single story getting played out and worked through over and over again. The Sabbath is a little mini-shaped story. The Passover is a mini-shaped story. The sacrificial system, the day of atonement, the whole story is all about this shaped messianic melody. I mean, even just to go back to the story of David and Goliath, is here you have David, this language of an anointed Messiah being set over him. And when he goes to face down the giant Goliath, you should go just read the story this week in uh, 2 Samuel 17 or 15. And it just count how many times the text uses the word bronze to describe Goliath. It's like a creep, like it's like, like, it's like, it's like, are you giving a stroke? Like, why do you keep saying bronze over and over again? Bronze is the same letters as serpent in Hebrew. And then what does the story end with but him, you know, cutting off Goliath, crushing the head of the serpent, this like serpent character. And the giants are also all connected to the story as well. So what do you have in this? Is this little Messiah story of the Messiah, David, who enters into the valley to face off with the serpent, defeats him, and then brings victory and blessing for the Israelites who then they run in it. So this is just, Jesus goes, this is absolutely what the whole story is about. We could go through and do Esther, and Esther's an incredible one. Daniel, who goes into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who go into the fiery furnace. Psalm 23, I belong to the Lord, I'm the shepherd of the, go through the valley of the shadow of death. Like, it's just Psalm 22, the Song of Solomon is all about this as well. The book of Job, every character, every story in their faithfulness, but also in their failures is a repeating of this story. 
And so when you finally then get to the prophets, the era before the arrival of Jesus, what they're looking for and looking back on is this story being played out over and over and over again. And they're looking forward to who is the kind of human that's gonna both fulfill all of humanity's moments of faithfulness, but also remain faithful. And not like Adam and Eve and not like Abraham and not like Noah and not like, you know, fill in the blank, fail at the moment of testing. Who is going to be the faithful one? And the prophets use all sort of titles for this. It's the suffering servant in Isaiah. It's the son of David in Jeremiah. It's the son of man in Daniel. Who is the crescendo of the messianic melody? Who is the one that's going to bring about the ultimate redemption of the story of Israel? What kind of human do we need to regain that three-part promise of God being God, us being his people, and him dwelling with us forever? And it's this V-shaped story. Humans, at our best and at our worst, are all parts of a photo mosaic. You'll see behind me Robert Silvers. He claims to be the creator of photo mosaics. Uh, This is his of Louis Armstrong from back in 2000. And so you see the picture of Louis Armstrong, yes? And then right here you have a zoom in from just like at the top of his hair. You can kind of make out the bottom one here. So what do you have here? You have a picture that is composed of hundreds of other pictures put together in such a way that when you see them and you back up, it's unmistakable. It's a picture of Louis Armstrong. This is how the Old Testament works. Every story, when composited and put together, builds up to this crescendo that makes the shape of the Messiah. And what Jesus claims is that shape is himself. For us as Messiah people, what we claim is Jesus is the one who fits that story. So once again, the Bible doesn't work as predictive literature where we're just looking for like, you know, Isaiah when it comes time for like Good Friday and like he will bear the sins or whatever. We, you know, some passage about virgin birth. Those are there, but it doesn't work primarily like that, saying it's gonna happen in such a such a way. But it works mostly as perspective analogy. It sets our expectations for the kind of person that we need. And so this is why Paul, looking at the Old Testament, talked about all these stories as the shadow of what was to come. He called the Old Testament a tutor for us to the Messiah. He called it the mystery that was kept silent or a type of one to come. Hebrews referred to the Old Testament as a model, a copy, a shadow, a pattern, and Peter referred to it as a type. And this is not just Jesus, all of his first followers. They understood this is how the scriptures work. Now, to return back to Luke 24 then, Jesus says, this framework for reading the Bible is you can't fully understand me apart from this messianic melody. But even more than that, what he's saying is you haven't truly understood the Bible until you've understood how it leads to me. And to return to that good intuition that we had at the beginning, the really good news of all of this is, is once we begin to see how the story is all about Jesus, we begin to see ourselves hiding in the picture as well. We see ourselves as background characters being brought in. That as we now read these stories and we see the messianic shape, we find uh, Jesus, as he's heading down to crush the head of our enemy, we are the Israelites waiting up scared as David goes down to fight Goliath. We're not David. We're the Israelites shaking in our boots who need a Messiah to go down and face our enemy for us. We are not Moses going up on the hill to intercede. We are the Israelites sacrificing to false gods, the golden calf down and around it. Jesus is the one who ascends the mountain. We are not Job, Un, you know, unsuffering for the, you know, all the wrong reasons. We're Job's friends trying to piece together why bad things happen to good people. Jesus is the only blameless and righteous one who enters into suffering. 
Jesus is the Job who then also, on the other side of, of entering into that suffering, then brings vindication for himself and forgiveness for all of his friends. It's so good. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice who absorbs the sin of the people. He takes on our selfishness and death. And then he is the high priest who emerges out to announce forgiveness over. We're the Israelites waiting outside, watching our sins being put on the sacrificial lamb as it's led away. And then Jesus is the high priest who brings forgiveness for all of us. We are not Jonah going in, you know, we're the Ninevites, up to no good, who receive the message and the call to repentance. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant who bears our sin and shame and makes us new. This is then how you read the Bible as messianic literature. You are not the main character. You're the one getting saved. You're the one that's being reached out to and cared for in the midst of your sinfulness, your selfishness, and even your stupidity. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he repeats the V-shaped messianic melody, but with an incredible inclusion in the picture. He says, I passed on to you, the church in Corinth, as most important what I also received, that the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Paul here is replaying the messianic melody, but with the key insight that the story is not just something that we look back on like David and Goliath, but that it is for you and I, that it is your sins that he carried. It is his victory that's now your victory as he becomes your Messiah. Paul repeats this as saying, Jesus is the center of the story. And that means that the great news is that you're a supporting cast member who gets saved by his work. This is what Peter does in the story of Noah and the ark. And so good. He talks about just as in the day, you know, there's decreation coming. We talked about this a moment ago, this flood of God's judgment that's coming. And Noah, by his faithfulness, builds the ark and his family. They go in, they close the doors, and they are saved from the judgment to come. Peter uses this very same story to say this is exactly what Jesus has done. Not through building a boat, but by giving his own life. That Jesus is the ark and he is Noah at the same time, inviting us in to his blameless righteousness to be safe and found within him and to enter that no matter what we go through, his resurrection, life, and forgiveness reside within us. Peter takes this and goes, this is what baptism is all about. For some of you that have been baptized, for some of you that are considering it, or some of you that, you know, that's maybe a few more steps down the road. That's what baptism is all about. It is this V-shaped story being enacted in front of everyone as a testament to what Jesus has done for me and now the life that I'm going to live in him that you stand in the water and you proclaim your commitment and reception of Jesus as king. You go into the water as a, a symbol and sign of entering into the death of Jesus and being brought back up to new life. This is every, we're gonna talk about the table in just a moment. Everything that we do is about this V-shaped story. And the vital step that we can't remember as we begin to close and how to read the Bible today is when we read this as messianic literature, it means that we don't stop there. But being raised to new life, we are now Messiah people. We are people that are being conformed to the image of the Messiah, which means that V-shaped story that we talked about now becomes indicative of the sort of life that I live. That the messianic melody of our failures and our faithfulness that Jesus has now fully filled up, they now overflow into our communal lives through his spirit. That we now enter into suffering and unjust 
a difficulty and temptation and challenge and even death, believing that life and resurrection are on the other side. And so like I've said, the Bible is not about you or me. It's about the Messiah Jesus, which means for us now as his people, it's about us. And this may seem like semantics to you. It may seem like just the ordering of the sentence, but it's vital. The Bible is about him. Jesus is the saving and forgiving King and Messiah. And because we follow him, we're now being shaped by the overflow of that victory. And so this is why Jesus says things like, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As we read the Bible, the invitation is to look for this V-shaped messianic melody. And as we find the story, to first and foremost ask, how is Jesus the hero of this story too? How does this move me to the direction of seeing Jesus as the one who entered into whatever the story is that I'm, and where am I at in the story? Not as the hero, but as the supporting cast. But then once I see Jesus that way, to then reread the story again, and now as a person of Jesus, what does it mean for me to enter into this as well? And so before we move into response, as a reminder of our practice for this week at collectivechurch.com, slash current series. Uh, We're gonna be doing a second week in the practice of study. So we began this last week. We're gonna do it again this week. So there's multiple options to pick from in your DG. The the invitation is just to pick a new one. So if you did the reading a, a passage in multiple translations last week, this week, pick another one to do as a group and discuss what it comes together out of it. If I can recommend two resources in growing to learn the Bible as messianic literature, the first is bibleproject.com. The second, and I'm not kidding, is the Kids Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, You can find readings of it on YouTube for free. I had a biblical theology course in my undergrad, and I I chose that book um, to do my book report on. And I was like, this is great. I'll do a kid's book. I cried my way through it. I'm not joking, you And so Jesus Storybook Bible, it's for big kids too. Um, So that's the practice for this week is we're gonna continue to study the scriptures asking how is Jesus the fulfillment of each story that I'm looking at. And so as we end today, we're about to move into a time of response. I just wanna set before us revealing this. This is maybe some more heady, you know, big picture theology of how to read the Bible stuff. But I do want us to spend some time thinking about what does the story of Jesus mean for me? For some of you here, that may genuinely mean an invitation to faith, proclaiming Jesus, going, I, I see Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Scripture, and I see him as my king. I see Jesus as my interceding priest. I see him as my, the one that I look to has saved and forgiven me, or at least I want to. If that's you, we want to invite you. Come pray with our prayer team in a moment to take that step and whatever that might look like. For others of you, this might look like you just spending time praying through, what does it mean for me as a person of Jesus to enter into what feels like suffering and death and challenge to myself, dying to my desires, believing that there's actually more life and blessing on the other side. For some of you, that may be some command, something that God has been calling you to do or maybe to give up, to not do, and you've been wrestling with it for some time. The invitation of Jesus is actually life is on the other side of that death. For some of you, it's a greater commitment to some responsibility in your life. For some of us, it's, it's being more, more present in our parenting or within our relationships. For some of us, it's, it's being more present to the suffering and pain that you have in this moment and not running from it. For some of us, it's coming to terms with the fact that death is part of this thing. But in all of these believing that as I give myself up to those things, Jesus says that's exactly where resurrection life is found. And so this is our prompting as we come into a time of response. Let's pray.